The Pleasures of Being Out of Step, profiles legendary jazz writer and civil libertarian Nat Hentoff, whose career tracks the greatest cultural and political movements of the last 65 years. The film is about an idea as well as a man, the idea of free expression as the defining characteristic of the individual. We are joined today by the director and producer of The Pleasures of Being Out of Step, David L. Lewis. David, welcome to Film School. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, why Nat Hentoff? Um, what was? Uh, what is it about him? Is he a point in his life where we needed to, to sort of know more about him for our children, our children's children? Or have you been looking at Nat as a subject for a while? What drew you to to do a, a story now about him? Well, I, I've been interested in some time um, as we've been um, as the journalism business has been sort of overwhelmed by the digital age. Um, in kind of preserving um, the legacy of some of these guys who uh, made their careers in print. And um, Hentoff is a guy who, um, because of his influence and reach in two different um, strands of his career, if that's the right word, which is his work as a jazz critic and his work writing on civil liberties, um, has a particularly rich story to tell, and the... um, a particularly um, compelling um, story to tell the connection uh, between those two strands of his career, which is is what I try to get at um, when I talk about um, free expression and its role in um, defining individuals. When we talk about defining individuals, I'm talking about um, defining individuals as opposed to um, people being members of groups like Jews or blacks or that sort of um, way we tend can sometimes identify people that um, deny them their individuality. Yeah, that, that's a great point, and it, it is a really an integral part of uh, this film, The Pleasures of Being Out of Step, in that uh, the, the, the music itself, jazz itself, as someone put it in the film, and I'll butcher this a little bit, in that it is uh, an, an accommodation of an individual in service to a whole, the group, the music that's being produced, and that finding that ability within that framework to express yourself, to be an individual, is at the heart of, of, what's, of what jazz is. And it seems that that's what is at the heart of what Nat Hentoff is about as well. Yeah, and I think um, it, it, part of his attraction to the music was that he, um, as we explained in the film, grew up in um, a Jewish ghetto in Boston where um, he was treated uh, as a member of this group. And, um, you know, it was a time uh, in our racial history in this country where black people all over the country, not just in the South, uh, were segregated and were treated as members of, of a group. And he discovered this music and discovered through the music that um, these mu- musicians were human beings and individuals with stories to tell, and that the stories that um, they were telling uh, were uh, they were telling them with their music, and and they were telling the stories about themselves as individuals, and that's what attracted him um, to the music. And I think as he grew and he grew up and his ideas grew, and as the civil rights movement grew, um, he came to recognize um, that as an explicit uh, value that is uh, contained uh, not only as a moral value, but it is also contained in our laws, and that led him to um, start writing about civil liberties in the Constitution 
and the First Amendment and free expression in particular. Yeah, it is a it is a wonderful nexus. Uh, his life is in in the in the regards to journalism, political movements, jazz music, the importance uh, that that music had on 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 social issues. I mean, the 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 mere acceptance, the mere um, uh, seeing the value the of jazz uh, as the art form that it is uh, was I wouldn't say unheard of, but it was certainly it wasn't given the the weight that it deserved. And it were it was people like Nat Henhoff and others, and uh, I remember Ralph J. Gleason as well. Some of these writers, Leonard Feather, those people that went in and really just broke it down and and gave it context and the sheer artistic beauty of this music and and it and it, it elevated uh, in some ways the perception of these musicians um, who were predominantly African American and that had an impact as well. Uh, absolutely, and um, you know we have to remember that jazz um, in the twenties and thirties uh, was um, thought of as as um, popular music, but also sort of um, what we now think of as sex and drugs and rock and roll. Yeah, you know, it was it was it was um, clubs and drugs and alcohol and yeah. reefer and yeah. sex and organized crime, and it wasn't considered respectable music. It wasn't um, you know uh, European classical music, um, and it wasn't until the 40s and 50s and the generation of critics, um, including that, and including the um, Gleason and the other guys that you mentioned, um, started to write about it as as an art form and as uh, um, an intellectual accomplishment uh, that, that it started to become uh, recognized as a, uh, and particularly as a purely American um, art form. Yeah, let's back up a little bit and explain to people uh, Ned Antoff, writer, uh, his sort of how he got into journalism and and moving forward. Just to explain a little bit. Uh, you mentioned his background, growing, growing up in Boston, anti-Semitic area. Father Coughlin, Coughlin? Am I saying that correctly? Father Coughlin. Coughlin. Yeah, I yeah. knew I Coughlin, and um, you know the impact that he was having on on anti-Semitism in this country. And people forget. Uh, imagine a kind of a Rush Limbaugh of his era. Uh, and, and great, uh, a yeah. great analogy. Um, he, he broadcast from a, a Catholic church in in Michigan, and um, in my research, I found out that um, you know, during his heyday in the, the late thirties, uh, he had thirty or forty million listeners. Wow! Every every Sunday. Wow! Yeah. And in a country that probably there were probably only one hundred and fifty million people. I mean, that that's a phenomenal amount of yeah. people listening. Yeah. Uh, and and his impact was, in fact, uh, to push people into what I think we would say today safely say is hate speech towards uh, towards it, particularly the Jews. I mean, he was, I don't think he was too um, shy about yeah. it. So. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, he, there weren't explicit calls to violence, but, um, you know, there were, there were uh, in Boston and, and elsewhere on the East Coast, um, gangs um, of Christian, Christian youth who uh, would go out and, um, uh, attack uh, uh, Jews, 
and that describes his experience getting beat up and some people in his neighborhood. Um, but I will also say that Nat also was able to recognize that the Irish in Boston were discriminated against also. Yeah, yeah. And he recalls, you know, in his youth seeing, um, you know, signs in Boston saying, no, Irish need apply. And, you know, that they were they were an immigrant minority group as well. Yeah. I, I think the I think to what comes to mind when I think of Nat and, and you're in the film, you see the description of his history is, you know, righteous indignation, righteous anger, righteousness about him and and a and a consistency of thought. So and we'll get into that a little bit more later on. But um, that, and it sort of this was his beginning. And then, of course, in the film, we see his sort of introduction into the world of jazz walking down the street in front of a, a record store that at that time used to broadcast the music out into the street and how what drew him in and what began this lifelong love of this kind of music. Yeah, um, Crazy Music Store in Boston and, and listening to Artie Shaw, yeah. um, his song Nightmare, which which reminds him of the um, Jewish cantorial music that, that he heard in the synagogue. And, and Nat describes um, just being brought uh, to a halt in front of the store. And um, uh, my wonderful um, archivist... Uh, found actually a picture of this historic raised music store on, uh, uh, on the middle of this busy street in uh, wa- uh, Washington Street, I think it is, in Boston during that era. And um, you, know, you see all the um, Model T cars going down the street yeah, and yeah. women with their um, parasols and stuff. You know, I, I have to say, oh, by the way, to remind our listeners, we're speaking with David L. Lewis. He's the director and producer of The Pleasures of Being Out of Step. It's the story of Nat Hentoff, uh, r- renowned, uh, uh, award-winning uh, journalist, uh, uh, free speech advocate, one of the premier uh, voices in terms of um, free speech and what it really means, what it is to protect that, and how important it is. Uh, I just real real quick, I wanted to uh, digress for just a second because watching that segment of uh, the pleasures of being out of step and his baptism into the world of jazz uh, in the, at that record store. Um, I remember as a suburban white kid walking, wandering into the library next door to my high school, and they had turntables and headphones, and I, you know, listening to the Beatles and the, you know, Beach Boys kind of music, and I, which I loved, but I, I put on uh, In a Silent Way, never uh, a Miles Davis epic album, and it forever changed my perception of what music is and what it could be, and it, and it forever, I mean, it was a life-changing experience to hear that music. Yeah, and I think a lot of us who are um, in, in involved or engaged in um, culture can um, trace our, our connection or our interest to one of those moments, right? Yeah, yeah. So I just when when I heard, when when I'm seeing this in the film, I'm thinking, I absolutely understand. And uh, so, well, so so moving forward, Nat is now uh, becoming. He's starting to write for some of the New New York newspapers uh, or Boston. Am I? I'm sorry. Well, he um, he had a radio show in Boston That's during, right. That's during during World War II. He he didn't serve. He was for us, um, and he had a radio show in Boston. And all these guys like Duke Ellington and Charles Mingus and and, and Miles and, and would come through, and he would do broadcasts from the clubs. We have um, an excerpt of one of his broadcasts from 1949, yeah. uh, in which he uh, is, is interviewing Edmund Hall, the great uh, clarinetist from from the Savoy Club club in Boston, and, and from, from his radio show, he got um, a couple of magazine columns, and he started doing some freelance stuff for this magazine called Downbeat, which was um, kind of like the Rolling Stone for the jazz world yeah. in those days, and they, they brought him to New York, and that would be in the early 1950s or so. And, and it's wonderful, because uh, he was 
showcasing through his his radio show and every and, and the other platforms he had showcasing these artists, giving giving them uh, the kind of attention that I'm was rare for them. Um, and Not only showcasing them um, in terms of um, writing about them, but also showcasing them and allowing them to explain their music yeah. in their own voice, and, and that is what um, a lot of people say distinguished Nat's um, jazz criticism from a lot of the other critics of the day who were more interested in analyzing the music and giving their opinion of the music and describing the music. And Nat was always more interested in um, describing the, the musician and, and letting the musician talk about their own experiences and, and how that helped them um, create the music and with the connection between their the lives that they lived and the music that they were making. Yeah. Yeah, so he's in New York, obviously... Uh, a, a bustling metropolis with all kinds of political, social, I- cultural issues and uh, happenings and things. And it was there that he, at some point, began writing for... Well, take me through the chronology. He was doing... I don't want to skip ahead here. <laughs> so, yeah, no, um, he, he, was, uh, he was writing uh, for Downbeat, mm-hmm. in the, and he gets fired from Downbeat for hiring a black office worker, and he, um, he's looking for work, and this is uh, 1957, 1958, um, he, he hears about this uh, small downtown newspaper that just started a few years before called The Village Voice, and they wanted him to write for them, and he walks in there and he says, oh, yeah, I'll write for you, I'd love to write for you, but I, I don't want to write about jazz, I'll write about anything else except jazz, because I don't want to be known just as, as a jazz writer and as a music writer. And um, so he started writing on uh, social issues and education and things like that uh, for the Village Voice and um, started writing um, a column called Second Chorus. Yes. And the second chorus uh, came after the first chorus, the first <laughs> chorus being, being what we now call the mainstream media, yeah. and the second chorus um, giving the alternative perspective on what the mainstream media was doing. And that became what we now know today as alternative journalism, yeah, a huge yeah. uh, movement in, in journalism in this country um, and that spread you know, from the Village Voice all over the country. And I think it's safe to say, uh, David O. Lewis, that this is a, where he really developed the strong voice in advocating for the importance of uh, the First Amendment and free speech, free, free expression. Yeah, and he he developed that. He, he it grew even stronger later in the '60s um, and into the early '70s when he started writing about the um, anti-war movement and the all the measures that were taken to silence the anti-war movement. And and going into the '70s, you know, the F, FBI COINTEL uh, pro uh, investigations and all the um, subversions subversions of our liberties that uh, that started that took place during that time, and um, that's about when I started uh, reading him as a as a young kid uh, growing up in suburban New York, and the Village Voice was our music bible. But Hentoff was always there, and it was that awful period in in this country, that awful political period of the late you know after the Vietnam War, at the end of the, as, the, as the war was winding down. And after Watergate, there as Watergate was winding down, and you know Jimmy Carter's you know malaise <laughs> on the country, uh, and Hentoff was always there as you know the, the counterpoint to all that. He was some he was 
an institution, one of the few institutions in the country uh, that a young kid like me could could believe in. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I don't want to again. People should. <laughs> should draw their own pleasure of the pleasures of being out of step and watch this because there's a lot of fun things in here as well. I, I also knew of Nat from the liner notes that he did on, on jazz albums and they were just spectacular and really felt like he got drawn into the music. There's a lot in the film about his work. His, I, I had no idea he had actually been a part of producing uh, a television show for CBS, which looked fantastic. I don't know how much film exists from that or kinescope or whatever's left of that show but that looked incredible there's a lot of it around um, wow and it's great to watch one of the um the the toughest decisions we had to make in the film was how to, how to work with that footage without sort of letting it take over the whole film you know because you, you can just watch it forever and ever there's about three minutes uh, or so two or three minutes of um billy holiday and lester young and i mean geez that's that is that's amazing. That was amazing stuff. And of course, both of them, uh, both of them died within about uh, two years of that broadcast. Is that right? Yeah. Oh God! Just I would, I would, boy, I wish they would bring that. There have been attempts to bring that kind of a show back, and and you know, with some success. Um, but boy, what a what an amazing line! I had no idea, I had no no clue that there had been a show like that. So uh, thank you for. Thank you for that, if nothing else, even. But that was just great stuff. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of gaining the confidence of Nat. You are right up close and personal with him in this film, uh, interviewing him. And by the way, this is not exactly, you know, Kit Glove's love letter to Nat. You you uh, you uh, showcase people in the film that don't agree with him, have had falling outs, they've had this and that, but... Uh, but it, it's an honest portrayal. It's a, it's an honest, well-rounded portrayal of the man and his times and his life and all. Tell me a little bit about gaining the confidence of Nat Henoff and then bringing in some of these people that did not exactly, you know, have uh, the 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 smoothest of relationships with Nat. Um, gaining his confidence. Well, gaining access to him uh, is, is a story in and of itself. Uh, I called him up and I said, you know, I want to do a a documentary about you, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, sure, kid, fine. I, I'm, I'm really busy on deadline right now. Can you call me back in a few weeks?" And he, he hung up the phone. And then, so I called him back in a few weeks, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, sounds great. Uh, I'm really busy right now. Can you call me back in a few weeks?" And he hung up the phone. So I, I, I sat down and I wrote him a letter, and he doesn't read email or anything. So I put it in the mail, printed it out, and put it in the mail. And uh, he called me like the next day, and I think he, I think. He thought I had wanted to interview him for a documentary, but when I put it in a letter and I explained to him that I that I wanted to make a document, a full documentary about his life, I think he became more interested. Mm-hmm. Um, he he he's not the type of guy who loves a lot of cameras in his face, and um, there were some challenges in sort of working with him um, uh, in that sense. But there were no challenges editorially. Yeah. He never told us what questions to ask or not to ask, what we could ask or not ask. He never told us who we could talk to or, or uh, what we could ask them. And I think that um, what I said is um, I don't think that was out of respect for me because he didn't know me that well. Yeah. So I think he came to respect me. But I think that was more out of respect for journalism and the journalistic process and his understanding of it. And I think um, 
Yeah. I think he wanted a, a. I think he would have been horrified if we had produced a, a love letter. <laughs> you know, I think he wanted an honest portrayal. He's a man who thrives on conflict himself, and, and I think he would have felt it would have been somehow dishonest to uh, not por- not show that in the film. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think you're absolutely right. Even his wife uh, talks about his love of the fight, his love of the mixing it up and, and, and going at it. He said, according to her, it's fun. It's fun. He gets, this is where he, and it does, I'm sure, being challenged, you know, you know constantly over what you say and how you say it is, is in and of itself uh, a great muscle that needs to be exercised, and especially if you're a journalist. Yeah, and, and um, it, I think um, the way she describes it for them, it helps them, both of them, um, uh, come to their core beliefs and, and understand them better and thus be able to stand by them yeah. uh, in a way that, that makes them, gives them a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, again, throughout the film, uh, and there are some people that he, he grew up with, worked with uh, in, the, in journalism and in, and in jazz and in the support of the First Amendment and free speech and all of it. And there are people who truly admire him in the film. I mean, there's plenty of people to say great things about him because he is one of those guys that you, you, know, you mentioned at the outset, you know, that we, these lions of literature. Uh, I just did last week interviewed uh, um, the director of a film on Gore Vidal, another person who we've lost, who another voice. Kind of we've lost a lot of, in my opinion, we've lost a lot of literacy uh, in, in political discussions by virtue of, uh, now Nat's obviously still with us, but we're, they we're on the verge of, you know, missing these people and, and, and to be able to document their life and, and to be able to see, here's who they were and are. Um, I think it's really important. And Through where they fit in, in, in intellectual history, which is, is not something uh, people talk about much anymore. Right, uh, right. It was true. And I think it's so easy, especially now with uh, the 24-hour news cycle, to not be able to really understand the context uh, when we discuss some of these issues that have been with us for millennium uh, or more, and that now it, it, more and more it's really important we have a context, and, and a part of that is having history and understanding where we were and where we are. I just really enjoyed your film a lot. Um, again, as of someone who's been reading and been uh, interested in Nat's work for so long, um, it's it's just a terrific film. And I, uh, Yeah, I'll only mention it again, The Pleasures of Being Out of Step. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to just let your audience know that there's a book, a companion book that goes with it by the same title. It's available on um, Amazon, and it's, um, it, it covers a lot of the same ground, but it's, uh, it's done in an oral history format. Oh, okay. And it's, um, it goes into a lot more detail and has a, um, a lot more information out of it. And a couple of people um, who were interviewed in the book who uh, did not end up in the film. Where, where is that available? Tell us. It's David. available on Amazon. It's oh. called the same title, The Pleasures of Being Out of Step. Okay. Published by um, the City of New York Journalism Press uh, here in New York. Uh, I want to also mention um, Andre uh, Brower is the narrator, wonderful voice. Yeah. People know him as Detective uh, Frank Pempleton from uh, from the uh, Homicide Life on the Street, which was just one of the best series of all time. Congratulations on involving him in the pro uh, in the project. It was so great um, to have a chance to work with him um, uh, and different working with an actor than uh, with a news personality because he wanted he wanted to be directed and and uh, Andre um, 
obviously that's his most famous role, but um, you know, he's also done Shakespeare in the right. park, and he was one of the few guys, we thought a lot about who we wanted to do it, and he just seemed to have the range to be able to handle the political work and the jazz work, and reading, you know, liner notes and listening to the music at the same time, and just having that, that voice, that command that he has over his tone, um, was just such a great pleasure. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, exactly. By, by the way, again, I wanted to score the music in this. It's so beautiful. Uh, some of my favorite artists, including, obviously, we talked about Miles Davis, but Mingus, Thelonious Monk, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, these people, just just amazing artists. Uh, Billie Holiday, of course, uh, just, and to hear the music and to see how, how much uh, Nat loved it and his record label, which in a very sort of... Uh, sort of a uh, bright shining star for a couple of years in the world of jazz and production of some remarkable uh, music. Uh, just great to see. Just really, really cool. And a real, a real privilege to be able to work with that material. Yeah. Sam Pollard is your, your editor. He did a fantastic job as well. You, um, you were mentioning him earlier. Uh, I'm a fan of Charles Mingus, and um, I think uh, the opportunity to work with some of that material was was what drew Sam in, and uh, I was very lucky to have him on board. Yeah, and of course, uh, your your director of photography, Tom Horwitz, uh, who goes back to Harlan County. My God, I mean, yeah. phenomenal, great work. It looks good. The film looks good. Uh, the 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 framing on on in the interviews, and it's just it it's very it's a really Really nice piece of work. Um, well, we knew that we knew that um, doing a film about a writer is it's not the most visual of activities, and so I knew I had to make it look good. And Tom was the guy uh, to do it. It worked out great. And once we um, came to an agreement on what we wanted it to look like, uh, he executed it to perfection. Yeah, and again, the people, the com- the commentary from people who have known that. Uh, the the array of people that to kind of span his lifetime, including his wife. She looks like she's a she's a a bit of a spitfire herself, you know. Yeah, uh, people think of things think she's the star of the film. <laughs> she is. Uh, it's funny to see Nat in his in his natural habitat. He looks like he was a bit of a pack rat, if I yeah. editorially speaking. I didn't, uh, you know. Yes, I would say. Well, it's just, it's good to see the humanity in him, and, and he's got a sense of humor. I don't want this to sound like it's all dire, or dour, and, pardon me, dour, and um, and uh, seriousness. He's got a sense of humor, uh, and a real uh, a, a sense of himself. And uh, well, Without giving away too much, uh, yeah. as far as the sense of humor goes, there's that joke that Lenny Bruce tells <laughs> about him, and I wasn't sure how Nat was going to react when I, <laughs> when I reminded him of the joke, but he laughed, and it was just a wonderful moment I had to include that laugh in the film. Oh, yeah. No, I, it's great. So, well, I'm, I'm so uh, happy to have you on the, uh, the show the film is opening today in Los Angeles at the Music Hall in Los Angeles. Actually, it's more like Beverly Hills, the Music Hall 3, and it'll be rolling out to the Arena Theater on the 11th. Uh, you should check it out. Uh, I just have to ask, because this does happen once in a while, are you going to be out in Los Angeles for the opening, or are you going to be in New York? Um, right now, I plan to be there for the July 4th opening. Okay, at the Music Hall. Yep, that's my current plan. Okay. And it won't change, but plan to be there. Oh, excellent. Oh, oh good. All right. Well, uh, David L. Lewis, producer, ri- director of uh, The Pleasures of Being Out of Step, thank you so much for being on Film School. Mike, thanks. I've enjoyed the conversation.
You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 